0: When we think about customer education, it can be a really lonely world. There are a lot of people who have gotten into this field not even knowing that what they did was customer education. So that's why we tried to put together a set of principles, both with patterns and anti-patterns, so that we could really show what you can do in customer education that provides value to your user that will ultimately lead to retention, expansion, and lifetime value.
1: Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are and wherever you're watching from. My name is Matt Pierce, host of The Visual Lounge, and today on our show where we talk about images and videos, we'll probably talk a little bit about images video, but we're going to continue our conversations around customer education. and. With that said, we've got a fantastic guest who not only wrote the book on customer education, but has a lot of great ideas, is working in the field and will help and hopefully give us some great ideas on how we can run our programs. And if you're not running a customer education program, if you don't have customers, you know, thinking about what they need, you really need to. So let me go ahead and introduce today's guest. Adam Avermescu is the VP of Customer Education and Engagement at Personio, Europe's leading HR technology company. He has over a decade's experience building and leading customer education programs for high growth tech companies, and is also the author of Customer Education, Why Smart Companies Profit by Making Customers Smarter, as well as the co-host of CE Lab, the Customer Education Lab podcast. With that said, please help me welcome Adam to the Visual Lounge.
0: Hey Adam. Hey Matt. Hey, great to great to join you today. How's it going?
1: So good. We're, we're so glad that you're here now. Some, some of our audience may have seen you. You were a participant in the Level Up event uh, that TechSmith did, uh, gosh, 2022, uh, but also you're, you're out at events and speaking. So it's, it's just, it's a pleasure to have you here on the show. Uh, so, but we're going to start where we always start with our guest, Adam. Give us a little background. How'd you get involved and started with customer education?
0: My gosh, uh, probably have a background that is similar to a lot of folks who would listen or watch your show, uh, which is, I actually started my career as an instructional designer and, uh, I was one of those accidental instructional designers. I, I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do out of school, but, uh, I knew that I had a passion for, uh, writing language, structuring content, argumentation. I actually, I had an English and rhetoric major in college mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, I had a mug that says "Rhetoric, not just for liars anymore." Uh, <laughs> but one thing that I, I really liked about uh, doing that course of study is you really do learn how people persuade each other, how people influence different behavior, and that got me into the world of writing consulting, which is what got me into instructional design. So that was actually my my first role out of school, and I was I was actually doing instructional design for an agency. So I was customer facing. I was working with clients from uh, many different industries, creating learning projects for them. And I realized, hey, you know what? I really like this idea of instructional design and content creation. I really like working with customers. So maybe it would make sense for me to do something where I'm going in-house uh, at an, you know, an actual uh, business where my audience is our customers. So that's that's how I first got into customer education.
1: Awesome. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of folks and uh, accidentally end up as instructional designers and a lot of it goes internal focus or there is this really, I think, emerging trend where more people are focused on the end customer versus kind of the employees, which is which is why we're talking about this, because it's exciting and interest- interesting.
0: With customer education, it's it's uh, my podcast partner, uh, Dave Darrington, he always says customer education is both new and not new. trying to make sure <laughs> I got that quote right. Uh, because in some sense, the customer education practice that we have today, it – Yeah, it's uh, it's newer than what a lot of people who are, say, instructional designers in learning and development are doing. But at the same time, it also has a lot of roots in education services that uh, companies may have been doing back in the the 90s or early 2000s. So uh, definitely still has a lineage that it follows.
1: Yeah. And I I love that because there is a clear path, right? Like this while we think of it as newer and i remember in 2006 when i was starting my role at techsmith and and doing this work i didn't know the term it wasn't an apparent term i think we actually went with customer engagement as the kind of our group's term um but yeah so it's interesting to see like yeah the making those connections to that history history of what's going on what has been but now it is in the world of SaaS and kind of technology it's kind of uh, not new, but it's definitely taken on its own shape and form for today. So Adam, one of the questions I want to ask you is, um, you know, talk about that background, but you've done a lot of different things. You work for a lot of organizations that have, you know, implementing, you obviously have a book that you have some opinions about customer education. And I'm curious what defines success for you in, in, and I know there's probably a thousand things, but like kind of at a high level, how do you, know if you're being successful with your program.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a way I draw the analogy to what people look at when they're, they're doing internal education, which is you can look at a very limited version of whether it's successful, you know, looking at your course enrollments and course completions and and things like that. But, you know, you're not, you don't really know if you're having an effect uh, or changing behavior if you're doing it that way. So, whereas uh, internally, You would look at behavior change, that kind of getting into level three, level four, Kirkpatrick uh, evaluation, uh, maybe your your Talheimer style evaluation if you're if you're hip to the Talheimer. (laughs) Um, Like, are we actually changing behavior for our learners? Well, with customer education, it's actually no different. If we're doing it successfully, we are positively influencing our customers behavior in the way that they use our product. So ultimately, that's going to result in a chain of outcomes starting with, first of all, uh, better product adoption, which sometimes means more product adoption, but sometimes also means using the product in more sophisticated ways. As a side note, that means you might see a reduction in support tickets coming in because Mm -hmm. when customers are using your product in better ways, they're not asking basic questions to your support team. They might be asking more advanced questions, but that's good because that means they're adopting your product in better ways. Um, But the more they do that, the more you also start to see those uh, benefits extend over time. So more adoption will usually be more predictive of better retention of your product, better expansion for your customers, i.e. like if you have multiple products or do upsell, they're going to use more of your product, buy more of your product, but ultimately will stay with you for longer. So you're going to have more profitable customer relationships, which is why I say that smart companies profit by making their customers smarter.
1: Absolutely. and I, I... You know, I love that concept, right, that we're not just thinking about getting them to to use the tool, but getting them to use it better, to get it to expand that usage, because it does seem like and having seen this for a long time, customers oftentimes will take adopt a product first time using it, you know, and they'll get they'll get kind of okay with it. They'll figure out, Mm -hmm. like, what's the basic, most basic things I can do with it. And maybe some will push into that kind of intermediate. But then I see. There's this place where a lot of them get stuck, and uh kind of the yeah. perpetual intermediate, um but you know, if you can move them past, I' Describing that. my relationship with Camtasia for a long time, <laughs> not just you, a lot of people, right? like you become a perpetual intermediate, and to the because the effort to move from intermediate to really advance is often difficult and 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 I'm not this is not a commentary on textsmith or any anything else, but like it it's it's a lot harder to get move that needle, right because You have to have desires
0: with any with any product. Right. Like it's definitely not just a a TechSmith thing. It's uh, in fact, it's it's not even just uh, any media production uh, software. Right. And it's not just a software thing for any product, uh, especially ones that have really deep functionality uh, and a lot of use cases that you can get into with them. Uh, There's always a place that you're going to start, right? There's going to be a first area where you find value. And in fact, if you're in the world of customer success, the term for that is first value. And typically, there's a pretty standard path that customers follow to get that first value. And there might be a few different flavors of it, depending on their persona or their use case. But the first thing that you're ever trying to do as a company is nurture customers to get that, that first moment of realization that, hey, this thing can help me. But to then go beyond whatever that first use case is and get the full value of the platform, explore all the powerful features, uh, see all the automations. You need to know how those things work, what they can accomplish for you, and you need to learn about those things in a moment of need, where you're actually receptive to building those skills and getting those outcomes. So that's where a lot of companies uh, really struggle to get their
1: customers to that point. Yeah, man already learned. I'm, I, I'm like, it's hard for me even to think of the next question. I'm like, okay, how I'm, I'm like learning so much already. So There's I, so I want can go, I know. And Adam, I want to get to our topic. So I've got one more question before you, before we talk about this customer education manifesto is, you know, we're a show about visuals and using visuals, using images, video. Um, so for you, what's one tip you could give our audience about using images or video in their work? Ugh, there would be no customer education without visuals, so uh,
0: hard for me to pin down just one. You know what I'm going to think about? I'm going to think about one problem that is unique in many ways to customer education teams, and I get asked this all the time, because customer education teams are typically responsible for owning parts of the uh, documentation, like the the help center, um, certainly we do in, in our case, as well as producing courses and uh Uh, Yeah, other resources, even job aids that can be delivered to customers. And that means that inherently you are using a lot of visuals of your product. Mm -hmm. And if you have a rapidly evolving product, which a lot of people in my field, at least in in technology and in SaaS, uh, which is software as a service, uh, as they do, that means that every time you produce something, it's almost immediately going to go out of date. So there are many ways that you can um, address that. The most sophisticated way would be to use something like a a digital asset manager uh, so that you can make sure that every time you have an image or a video in one place, you can update it in that digital asset manager and it'll go populate everywhere else so it gets automatically updated. But there's a lot of things that you can do from a content perspective as well to make that uh, a little bit simpler on yourself. For example, if you can use things like a simplified UI, Uh, Mm -hmm. In your video, instead of using your actual uh, product UI and showing every click within an actual production environment, that means that maybe smaller changes can happen to your product and you're not going to go have to change the video or the screenshots every single time because you've already done the work of making sure that your visuals and your videos don't track completely one to one with the actual live product.
1: Yeah, I love that, and that we 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 often refer to that as a SUI or simplified user interface. Uh, but it also, and I'm sure, uh, with where you are in your work, localization is also consideration with that, right? Because then you can, the text mm-hmm. is probably maybe it doesn't even have any text. That's English or or German or French or whatever language you're having to work in. So that's a that's a great tip. I love that, and I love the yeah. the idea of a digital asset manager. You know. Replace it one place and it populates wherever it needs to be. That that seems like the dream, actually.
0: <laughs> Especially when localization is involved. We serve customers in many different languages, English, German, French, Spanish, Dutch. Uh, I think there's one now that even I'm forgetting. Apologies to the Italians, I believe. So yeah, and more to come. So uh, you can imagine that the content maintenance problem becomes a multiplicative problem the more languages and markets you add. Yeah, absolutely. Well,
1: Adam, one of the things I, when I was preparing for our, our conversation, I've had a chance just to, to, to know you over a year, couple of years now. And uh, I watch your work with interest because I, I think you're just doing fantastic stuff. But one of the things that I've seen that you and your uh, uh, podcast partner, Dave Darrington, who's been on the show a while back, uh, you guys released the, the uh, Customer Education Manifesto. And I want to talk about this. So from a high level what is it?
0: Yeah. So we released this customer education manifesto back in, I want to say, 2018. I don't know if I have the exact year right, but it was around the same time that we started doing the C-Lab podcast. And the reason why we started doing the C-Lab podcast, as well as the reason why I wrote my book in the first place, uh wasn't even necessarily because we had a lot of strong opinions about customer education, although we, we, we do, <laughs> uh, but rather because especially at the time, there weren't a lot of resources out there for people getting into the field. In fact, when I started in customer education, the first time, like, like you mentioned, it wasn't always called customer education back then, but the first time I was in my, my first true customer education role, for a technology company. I had just moved to the San Francisco Bay Area and my boss asked me uh, a question like, hey, who else is, is doing this well? Like who should we pattern our program after? And I was genuinely stumped. And I, I feel like I usually have an answer for something, uh, but in that case I didn't. So I was just sitting there looking at him with my with my mouth probably like slowly falling more and more <laughs> open, not having any idea how we would even go talk to other people who were doing what we did, because I didn't know how to go find another customer education manager at a company because they didn't really exist. People doing customer education were in other sorts of roles. Some of them, like I mentioned, were in these larger education services teams who are part of professional services orgs and they're providing paid services to customers. Uh, Some of them were in marketing roles, some of them were on product teams doing documentation, but getting into the field, there just weren't a lot of places, if you wanted to do this thing that we all found ourselves doing, like, how do you know how to do it right? Or how do you know even what to start looking into to build uh, some sort of best practices around doing it? So, you know, Dave and I wanted to kind of take those experiences that we had had trying to learn this field and make it a little bit easier for anyone else who was coming in or those of us who had been doing it but hadn't found each other,
1: mm-hmm. make it
0: easier for us to form a bit of a community with each other. So that's the reason why we started the podcast. That's the reason I wrote the book. But the manifesto is really in keeping with that, that spirit as well. It's it's based on the Agile manifesto, if you're familiar with that. And we wanted to basically come up with a few very short, simple, clear principles that you could use if you were getting into customer education. What is it that you should be doing and what is it that you should be avoiding?
1: I love that. So let's, I'm going to bring it up here and, and we won't read it all. Uh, I think anyone can, we'll, we'll post a link to the, the, the manifesto so people can go out and read it and they can even sign it if they want to be signatories on it. Um, uh, but I want to go through some of these, these points here that you've got, uh, posted that, you know, you know, the professionals must, and we'll, we'll talk about those here. So, uh, As we look at this, you know, the first one, guide customers to value versus educating them on every feature. And I want to talk about this for a second, Adam, because Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, guiding customers to value is super important, something I believe in. Um, but but what does that look like? Because I think I think there's lots of questions about, you know, obviously features could have value. So how do you balance this out? You know, and I because again, I work for a software company, I I think about features, I know about features, but I also You know, I've been doing this long enough. I I think about the value for you. What is so what does this look like when you are uh, kind of exhibiting this behavior?
0: Yeah, and I think in some ways it's helpful to understand what we're defining it against, because a lot of the things that we put in that versus section after the, the after each principle are things that people either end up doing if they haven't really thought too hard about it or they're just doing what they're being asked to do. Um, Or sometimes just what is the natural tendency? So guide customers to value is versus educating them on every feature. And educating them on every feature is the natural tendency sometimes when you're first getting into customer education or when you are uh, writing help center articles, getting into documentation, your impulse is going to say that the best customer education is the most complete customer education. And if I can somehow take all of the knowledge of the product out of my subject matter experts' heads and get it onto the page or onto the screen or into a video, then my customers will know how to do everything. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But, you know, the more we know about both uh, the the research around cognitive load and how people actually learn things and how people retain things, as well as very empirical customer data around how customers adopt products – what you realize is that customers are not going to retain most of what you teach them or most of what you uh, document for them unless it's in a moment of need or unless it's actually showing them a very clear path to, to value. So earlier, when I talked about that idea of first value that a lot of customer experience and customer success teams use, this is what I mean. What I mean is that instead of choosing every feature of your product to document, Many times it's best to start by getting a little bit more prescriptive and showing customers what are the first things that you can be doing with this product to get value. Okay, you've done that. Now what are the next things that you should be exploring to get additional value? So instead of just documenting everything, it's about getting prescriptive about a smaller number of things and showing customers the path.
1: Yeah, so I'm thinking about this, okay, from an example standpoint, you know, like I could teach someone, all the features of Camtasia, but what that doesn't mean is that I can make a good video, right? Like I can know how to use totally. all, all the effects. So I, so I love this because, and I love that idea of getting prescriptive, right? That like when I'm a new user of a tool and I've been trying out a whole bunch of tools lately, so I'm I'm feeling this pain. I know kind of like, okay, I want to do this thing, but... I don't necessarily know the path to get there, so I, I I love this idea that you're saying make it prescriptive, right? And it might not be for everybody. It might not hit. You may hit eighty percent or fifty percent, or maybe you have to have a couple different paths to, to that people yeah. can choose to go down. But so I so I like this. I like this idea. And it makes great value. Oh, I want to. Get- the
0: downside of being opinionated? Right, is that like not everyone is going to agree with your opinions? But it's it's better to do that than to just say like, hey, here's everything, and and why don't you go through our, uh, you know. 72 step product tour and, and see everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you, you with the data, you should be able to learn, right? What what ones work, which ones are most effective. And then if something well, something's not working for people, you can replace it or try something different.
0: Data oh. here can mean qualitative data, too, from from customers, right? It doesn't just have to be like the click paths.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. What what feedback are they giving? You? What are you seeing in support? What are you seeing uh, coming in through your, your all your channels, whether it's social or or whatever it might be? Well, Adam, I want to ask you about the second one. So it's build a core program that scales and I've got a thing that's in my way, but scales versus customizing every time. And so when it comes to this idea of scaling, right? Like obviously um, some customers in that process because customization can really help, but it obviously takes a lot of time, but it seems like some people get left behind because maybe they have very specific use cases or specific circumstances. So how do you do this in a way So that your customers are still successful, right? So that you're not just leaving people out or maybe, maybe that's the the trade off. Maybe some people will get left behind and that just has to be the price of doing business.
0: This is probably the, the spiciest of the, uh, the principles in the manifesto. Um, I like it. Not everyone agrees with it. Yeah, there, there are, (laughs) this is the point about being opinionated, right? Um, what this is in response to in some ways is the idea that customer education uh, the the background of the field is in education services in some ways and when you're in a professional services org one of the things that you might do is a very heavily customized bespoke curriculum and you can do that because the customer is paying you to do it however in modern customer education especially for customers or sorry for companies or products that serve a lot of consumers Uh, or many small businesses where their use cases might be a little bit simpler, but there's a lot of them out there. Mm -hmm. The fact is you simply won't be able to create a completely bespoke curriculum for them for every single customer. And often the people at the company who are serving these customers, uh, we're talking about roles like a customer success manager. Sometimes we're talking about uh, support agents. Uh, These are are, are humans having interactions with your customers and as much as possible, what you want to do is be able to free them up to use their human brains to add the pieces that uh, your curriculum and your customer education programs can't provide at scale. So really what you're trying to do, I, I used to call this customer education as the scale engine of customer success. And then that scale engine term caught on and now a lot of people use it and I love it. But the the core idea here is that most businesses go through this shift where you hire your first few customer success managers, your first few support agents, and they're just answering everything or they're just walking through customers, anything that comes up. But as your business grows and as you're serving more customers, your ratios are going to get to the point where you can't continue serving every customer in that same one to one manner right you're just going to have to figure out how to get more efficient about what you do and so where i think customer education the types of programs that we run today at least can generally provide the most value and this is different if you're if you have an exceptionally complex product uh, or one where your business your your customers are say all really large enterprises and they're all paying for really bespoke services but a lot of people aren't in that situation so if you aren't in that situation then where you can spend the most time and effort developing customer education programs is the things that actually will scale out to the most customers possible. So they all have the same starting point so that then when they're talking to a customer success manager or support agent, they can focus that human time and attention on the parts that education didn't already cover.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I like what you talked about that the connection, right? That customer education is not going to solve every problem, but if we can take the big chunk, but having those other folks um, fulfill it, fill in some of those gaps, right? Because they're, one, they're already going to be closer to whatever the issue challenge opportunity is, but also they're going to be able to take what customer education as the baseline. Because I, I know, again, as I'm thinking about it as a user of a product, oftentimes I will get to a point where I'm like, okay, I, I will go out and try to learn uh, and I want to know, kind of the answers to these basic things and then it's always it is nice to be able to go someone say like oh now that i've done these things what can i do here or here uh so Mm -hmm. so i I like that approach and i i appreciate that the manifesto takes an opinion and even if it's maybe not the perfect one and i'm not saying i'm not making a judgment here at all it's i i love that you know it lays some a line in the sand and say like hey is this right so uh this is good um, well, it
0: kind of takes like a Pareto principle, right, to the humans on your team versus the content that you're producing. And customer education is more about providing the forums to make sure that you're getting the, the types of answers or or inspiration or guidance that you want uh, without necessarily having to be in that, uh, in that 20%, right? So, uh, for example, what you just brought up, too, when you're looking for more inspiration or an answer or something that might not be covered in the core curriculum, well... You might not even always want to go reach out to a support agent. In fact, there's a lot of research that's been done across industries showing that most customers, if given the chance, uh, would not prefer to get on the phone and talk to support uh, for their their first, uh, their first resolution, right? They actually want to be able to self-serve in most cases. Uh, the issue is when you can't find something or when you can't find a clear answer to exactly the thing that you're looking for. And that's where actually providing multiple types of resources in a customer education program that still operate at scale becomes really useful. So uh, for example, at Personio, one of the ways that we educate our customers, like one of the functions on my team, is our customer community. And so you can go to our community and even if something is not in our core documentation, you can bet that someone has probably asked the same question that you've asked before and you can find an answer from another user about some of those harder to reach use cases. And I'm sure for for, uh, you know, TechSmith products, that's even more so, right? Because you've got so many different users trying so many different things in your software that you really do want to learn from other people.
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I love that bringing in of community, right? There's Because there's not just it's not just always a document or a video or a course. It is there's these other ways that we can build and help our customers be successful. Uh, mm-hmm. So. Adam, we've got we've got a bunch more of these principles to go through. I don't know that we'll get through all of them, and that's okay. I want to jump ahead because, and we might come back to the third one, but we'll read it. So lead with data tied to business outcomes versus measuring our activity. I'd recommend anyone who uh, didn't watch last week's episode with Debbie Smith to go and do that because we talked about that. But so, Adam, we might come back to that one, but I want to talk about this fourth one. Use agile practices to ship solutions quickly versus perfecting the content. And so I think here that this is, uh, you know, Really interesting, and I, I want to focus in on the agile piece of it because that's a—I yeah. mean—that's a, a philosophy around project management that is um, inherently about the way you do the work, maybe versus the work itself. And and I'm curious um, for you, what's the core to why agile, and what about agile really spoke to you as as you, the group was putting this together?
0: Yeah, so. This is the the word Agile in here is a little bit cheeky because our customer education manifesto is based on the Agile manifesto. Mm -hmm. And what we're not saying here is you must use a specific Agile methodology like you must use Scrum, you must use a Kanban board, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, There are software development teams that will give you uh, very strong perspectives on that. And there are instructional design teams Uh, who also have their own really interesting Agile methods, like, for example, meeting a lot of L&D teams who use something like Lama as their, uh, Mm -hmm. their Agile development method. I think it's super cool, but what all of those do, regardless of which one you use, is basically puts you in a situation where you are constantly iterating towards perfection instead of spending all this time developing something perfect and then bringing it into the world, not knowing if it's going to be used or not. So especially in the world of customer education, We need to ship quickly. We can't be too precious about what we release. So we need to be able to put an imperfect version of our product out into the world and learn from it quickly and iterate based on that. Customers will tell you pretty quickly what they're,
1: uh, you know, if you missed something. So my guess is that one of the things with what you said that I could I could hear the argument in my head is that um, great idea. Let's put it out there. We'll learn from it. Then we'll replace it. But the reality is it's really hard to get back to replace it and And what would you say to the organization that's struggling with that concept that they know? there's ten thousand things on their list of things that they they should be doing, want to be doing, could be doing, but getting back to things is 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 challenging, and the likelihood is it might not just not happen. What do you say?
0: Yeah, because it's not new, it's not shiny. What have you done for me lately yeah. i have a I have a practical response uh, and and a spicy response. I love it. Uh, we'll go with the practical. We'll go with the practical response first, which is I think one way that you can codify this is by putting a framework around the way that you update and iterate on content. So for instance, one thing that I'm very passionate about doing in the organizations that I lead is having a framework to measure the performance of content that already exists. And usually I will do it as a two by two framework. So on one axis, I have discoverability, which is how consumed is this content? If something is really popular, more eyes are on it, that's probably something that we'd be more likely to prioritize making updates to, fixing, iterating on over time versus something that nobody is going to. If nobody is going to it, then we don't have to worry so much about making the content better. We have to worry about getting people to it or was this even the right thing to work on? On the other axis is value. So that's your satisfaction scores or your upvote downvote ratings or whatever you use to indicate the quality. So very quickly by using uh, some sort of prioritization matrix like that, you can make the argument to say, hey, you know what, we've had this many users visit this course or this video. It's got an average rating of this. Uh, Clearly that is a signal that this is something that we have to go back and improve. Therefore, we're going to argue to prioritize this. So it doesn't really become an issue of, hey, we're never getting around to update anything that we've produced. It's more a matter of how do we choose what the most important things to iterate on are which kind of leads into my spicy response, which is that I think it's okay for a lot of stuff to stay in that first draft mode. Because I think sometimes we're looking for something to be so perfect and so polished that we lose sight of does perfect help the customer do better than an 80% version that we we came up with. I would never say like put something completely sloppy and uh, that, you know, that's not fit for purpose into the world. I like the idea of having a minimum lovable product, not just a minimum viable product. uh, Or some people call it like a minimum viable product that we're proud of. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say you should ship quickly, like do something that is still, you know, sufficient and fit for purpose. Um, But I would be okay not coming back to every single thing. I would come back to the thing that actually has data to support coming back and iterating on it.
1: Yeah, I think this uh, feels like it goes back to the the point we didn't talk about is the, the, these business outcomes, right? Like understanding what is important to the business, what's making an impact and and keeping an eye on those things so that you can make the right decisions.
0: I'm, I'm sure Debbie pointed to this as well in, in her discussion. But if you as a, a customer education leader or a customer education professional can only speak the language of learning but can't speak the language of the business or can't align with the outcomes that the business is trying to achieve, then you're not going to be able to make much of an argument for doing anything, much less updating your content.
1: And she did, so... No worries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's good to be iterated though. But cause I think this is such a, cause this is a struggle and I hear, it, I mean, I hear it in the customer education realm. I hear it in the marketing realm. I hear it in internal training. I hear it right. The, this is the concern is like, we're going to do this and then we're not going to be able to get back to it because of X, Y, Z. And sometimes that's a legitimate, like, Oh gosh, yeah, we do need to iterate. We need, but we, it mm-hmm. needs to fall into priority and we have to understand what makes it, something for a priority so I I love what you were saying just you know that the approach right like don't just look at it as like oh we have to get back to everything but what's the most important things what's going to have the most what is having the most impact and then Mm I you know I remember when we were I was in the depth of making tutorials we'd often look at like you know did something really change here or is it still an like you said the 80 percent is it still 80 percent accurate or are people going to be confused by it because we didn't make a change. And, you know, we were doing a lot with videos, so the cost of changes is sometimes a little bit harder because it's just like, well, yeah, it's just easier to start afresh from the recording than trying to fix it.
0: And customers will tell you if they're confused. Make sure that they have a way to, to rate your stuff and they will tell you.
1: They absolutely will. And we appreciate it. It's good. It's good to hear. OK, we'll, we'll talk about one more point here Then I think we need to to, to wrap things up with our speed round. But I want to talk about the designing experiences we actually want to learn from versus building safe, dry learning. And obviously that that feels good, right? Because we want these experiences we can learn from. But counterpoint here, Adam, sometimes safe, doesn't it mean it gets it done? It's effective, it just, it's kind of that, man, it might be 80% might be safe, right? Like it's not, you're not pushing into to new territory. So what do you say to customer education folks who are like, but, Adam, if I can just do something safe, I know it's done. It's going to last. It's going to be good. Kind of like what we're talking about, right? So what would you say about this point?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we know about learner engagement and retention of information doesn't run counter to that, right? Like when we talk about experiences we'd actually want to learn from, we're not talking about needing to do something super envelope pushing all the time. Not all of your learning experiences need to be built in. VR and include, uh, alternate reality games with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, blockchain credentials in the metaverse. Uh, if that, if that's kind (laughs) of how you interpret that, there is nothing wrong with having more traditional modalities, right? Like text is great. It's handy. Video is great. It's proven. But like when you do those things, look at it through the learner's perspective and, um, Again, it ties back to point uh, one for me that a lot of the times when we are creating um, when we're creating educational products, we kind of do it in a way where we sort of think, what should we be saying as the company to sound really professional, and that ends up getting into lowest common denominator really quick. It means you lose your brand voice and tone. it means you're saying things that sound very generic
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you basically sound like you. You wrote your copy using an AI and uh, didn't add any other prompts afterwards, right? Uh, so basically what we mean is don't be afraid to show a little bit of personality, to show a little bit of your brand, to get a little bit quirky, to do some things that might feel a little bit uh, unconventional. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at it through the eyes of your learner, because, you know, even thinking about, uh, uh, you know Gagne's principles and and getting a learner's attention. You don't want to do something that is perfectly expected and doesn't challenge your learner's way of thinking because that's a really poor way to get their attention or to ultimately educate them or change their behavior. So that's that's what we mean and and it sort of ties a little bit as well to this point about serving customers in their moment of need, um, which is that not everything needs to be a traditional course either, right? You can serve customers through things like, uh, in app learning, digital adoption platforms, uh, et cetera. Right. And that can be a little bit unexpected too.
1: Yeah. When, as you're going through those things and kind of those principles, I, I think about Richard Mayer talking about the personalization principles, right? Like, you know, using mm-hmm. a, inform, more informal, particularly in, in rich multimedia, like video, like using informal language, using contractions, you know, making it so it feels real. And I, you know, and, and I hope that's what people get out of this, right? That we're just having a conversation that it's not, we're not trying to be super formal and it all buttoned up. It's, it's like, this is a real in the moment conversation where, you know, you might say something, I might agree with it or disagree with it, but we can go back and forth. So I, so I, I love that. Right. Thinking that when we say safe, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have to be the cut and dry, super boring, but you know, I, and I, you know, I think there's lots you can do with that without being, on the extreme edge of technology or trying to push. Um, I think we have some great videos that I I love. We have a a co-worker, her name is Erin. She does our Snagit videos and she has so much fun making those videos, right? Like, and and they're scripted and they're written, but she just does it so well that you're like, I wanna know Erin, I wanna be friends with her because she looks like she's fun. Uh, She just actually did some, uh, I think some medieval Shakespeare stuff in her (laughs) Snagit video, which for the context, it made a lot of sense. Well, I love it, at, Adam. I'm, I, I know you mentioned. I'm just going to read it here. The last one is serve busy customers in the moment need versus making them do the work, which is awesome. But given that our time is coming short, we're going to jump into what our is our speed round questions. So those who are new to the podcast, the speed round is going to be short, quick uh, questions with court, short, quick answers, no one word answers necessary, but we can we can talk for a second or two, you know longer than one word, but it's all decided by the roll of a die. So let's go ahead and transition over to our speed round. Here we go. All right, Adam, we're gonna bring up our dice cam because, you know, we've got a dice cam on the show. So here we go, the first roll of the die coming out. Oh, it's a nice spin on that one, it looks like. Ooh. That's a seven.
0: So, so gonna... OK, good. I didn't get a critical miss.
1: No, no, not a critical miss. It's a D 12. So critical misses are a little bit harder. But question number seven. Uh, this is a fun one. If you had to shift careers and out of the world, the customer education, what would you do? Where would you go?
0: Oh, my gosh. I mean, I have a background in playing music. I used to play in bands. Um, and so, you know, if money were were no option, I would definitely get back into somewhere like songwriting or, or performing music.
1: Oh, that's awesome. I had uh, that's that, uh, you know, something I I've just learned about you, which is is very cool. I'm also finding there's a lot of folks in our industry who are musicians and like really talented. And I'm like, man, that's. I wanted to be a musician so badly when I was like in high school and not like marching band, but like a rock band. And I was not good. (laughs) It was bad. So there's
0: something about the field, though, that attracts the artistic urge. I don't know what that is.
1: It gives us at least a minimal outlet, right, Uh, to to do creative work. So. All right, Adam, next question. Here we go. Next roll the die. Oh, that is we're getting some great spins today.
0: Great spin.
1: Oh, my goodness. And that is a hard to see from the camera. So that's a nine. Uh, This one's been coming up a lot lately. So I, you know, got to check my dice here. So question number nine. Okay. I asked you several questions. Some of them, obviously, I was pushing on you a little bit. What's a question you wish I would have asked you, but I did not?
0: Ooh. Maybe like, uh, you know, we talked a lot about the things that uh, we advise customer education professionals to do here versus some of the common tendencies. Like maybe what is one of these mistakes that I made when I first got into customer education?
1: Well, cause I've definitely done a few of these. So, okay. We don't, we don't have a ton of time, but I want to ask you what's, what's one big mistake that stands out to you that you, you did make that you're like, Oh my gosh, if everyone could just avoid this, we'd be better off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I I did that wasn't even necessarily directly on this list was I made a big mistake in uh, assuming how much subject matter expert support that I would get, Mm. Uh, because when you're educating customers, you're doing it at scale. You're not necessarily getting a direct feedback loop from them, but it means that often your subject matter experts are either people working directly on your product who have very limited time uh, or people who are interacting directly with customers. So in a way... uh, You know, any assumption that I could make about how much of a like what percentage of a person's time that I would get, I had to beg, borrow and steal uh, to make sure that I I got that time with subject matter experts.
1: Yeah. And work to make sure it is understood in their work as a priority of some sort. Right. Like at least uh, so they're aware because I definitely I've I've dealt with that and that that is it is tough because if you don't know anything about your subject and they do, uh, mine was water purification. I knew nothing about it. I learned a whole bunch, thanks so to a good SME. <laughs> but it was hard to get his time. So, all right, Adam, we're going to do one more question here. So let's get rid of that right. question. Question nine. Let's see what kind of dice roll we get here. All right, number twelve. Right, go ahead. Uh, God, you scored the critical hit. So our question is, what's your one go to tool that helps you get your job done on a regular basis? This could be software, a piece of physical gear, uh, templates, whatever it might be. Do you have something that just you couldn't do your job without? Oh, my
0: gosh, that's a really tough question. What's so number I 12? Use? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to plug my former employer here. Like, I, I don't think I could really live a day at work without Slack. Uh, I live a lot of my life and plan a lot of my work over slack I use it for a lot more than just chat I use it for uh, following up with action items planning my to do list uh, trying to automate parts of my workflow so um, I didn't just work there but I'm also a user
1: yeah I, I actually love in slack and I've been doing this a lot lately is sending myself reminders.
0: Yes. And now they have like a schedule for later feature. So you can Mm -hmm. take anything and put it in your later column. And now you don't just have to like type in the DM like DDDDDD and look at your drafts, which I still do sometimes, but they've they've changed that.
1: Yeah, Awesome. Well, Adam, thank you so much for all your time and your great answers today. Where can people connect with you? Do you got something you want to share with us? How can maybe how can they get the book?
0: Yeah. Book is on Amazon. Uh, that's the best place to find it. So any of your local Amazon sites, search for customer education and you will find the book. Uh, you can also go to customereducationbook.com where uh, you can find the link. Our podcast, C-Lab, is on all major podcast places. So go to any of the pod places and type uh, C-E-L-A-B. Um, and finally, if you are in HR, which I know that uh, a lot of folks in this industry are, uh, head over and see what we're doing at Personio. Go to personio.com slash voyage and check out our new educational brand.
1: Awesome. Yeah, what a great example of customer education. Speaking of what you do, right? Like making it work. So, all right, Adam, as we wrap up our show, we like to ask our guests for their kind of their summary of what what we talked about today. So, Adam, what is your final take?
0: Whew. Okay. <laughs> When we think about customer education, it can be a really lonely world. There are a lot of people who have gotten into this field not even knowing that what they did was customer education. So that's why we tried to put together a set of principles, both with uh, patterns and anti-patterns so that we could really show what you can do in customer education that provides value to your user that will ultimately lead to retention, expansion and lifetime value.
1: Love it. Adam, thank you so much for sharing all this, your wisdom with us. Uh, hopefully sometime in the future, we'll have you back. We can talk more about those mistakes and, and learning, whatever it might be. But appreciate you being here.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Always good to have a chat with you and you know, equally inspired by, uh, by every time I talk to you or see you present, Matt. So thanks for having me.
1: Well, thank you. All right, everybody, go check out Adam's book. If you haven't seen it and you're looking for a foundation, this is a fantastic foundation. We've we've read it. I've read it. It is a a great book. I also recommend go checking out all the the CE Lab podcasts. Just really great stuff. Dave Darentine and Adam do such a great job talking to customer education leaders, bringing out key core ideas. And we're so grateful for for all that they do for our our field and industry and for those who are thinking about it. Great people to follow as well. But like, like you heard today, you don't have to have a manifesto to apply great principles though for customer education. but what you do want to be thinking about is these great ideas that Adam's talking about like how do you get to the moment of need? How do you help people find the things that they need and continue to go forward? And if you're struggling with all that stuff, don't worry about it. Just take one day at a time as like we like to say, take a little time, level up every single day. Thanks everybody.